what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among some robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side as well. But a Samaritan man, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the man said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for uh, the wisdom and compassion and mercy of Christ. And we ask as we consider the words of our Lord this morning, that you would change us. That each one of us would walk out of this building determined to be more like the one who saved us than when we came in. We pray for Pastor Toby as he preaches that you would give him grace and that your spirit would speak powerfully through the word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. We come to the second of our two weeks thinking about being Jesus' hands and feet to the ends of the street. We want to be a church that takes the gospel to the ends of the earth and a church committed to taking the gospel to the end of the street. And by talking about being Jesus' hands and feet to the end of the street, what we mean is that our visible love toward our community, our tangible love for our neighbor, would amplify the gospel that we preach. So that there have been a number of things that have been expressed. On Wednesday night, I was, to be really honest, I was really encouraged on Wednesday night as I just listened to the number of people who are involved in various ways of loving others, of serving others. And so Friday, I sat down with my membership role, and I just went through every name in it, and I started making a list. 
And so I just want to read to you from this list. This is what, now look, I didn't, I'm pretty sure I don't remember everything. And I'm pretty sure I don't know everything that happens. But this is what came to mind as I thought about this. As I thought about what is it that Gray Road Baptist Church is doing? Sharing the gospel with family members and co-workers. Doing Bible studies with children at Jeremiah Gray Elementary. Teaching English as a second language. Being foster parents. Coming alongside our foster families. Ministering to hurting women. Teaching and playing with and loving on the children in our church. Serving in the Gray Road Christian School ministry through prayer and in hands-on ways. Giving time to serve residents at Beach Grove Village. Making lunch for the Hebron men. Eating with them. Hearing their stories. Praying with and for them. Serving as court-appointed special advocates for children. Using your professional training in short-term missions. Reading the Bible one-to-one with other Christians. Reading the Bible one-to-one with unbelieving co-workers. Showing hospitality to one another. Coaching sports as a vehicle for gospel ministry. Using your businesses as a platform to spiritually serve both employees and clients. Giving time to the outcast and the forgotten. Giving time and energy to biblical counseling in our ministry and in the workplace. Silently working in our building and on the grounds to care for the property God's given to us. Writing letters to those in prison. Teaching the Bible in senior adult communities. Preparing to leave everything for the mission field. Using technology skills to extend our gospel reach in the world. Using your home and dinner tables as evangelistic tools. Coaching people towards financial health while encouraging them to trust in the Lord. Volunteering time and energy to do home repairs for others who can't do them. Doing Bible studies at Southport Middle School. Hosting international students for holiday meals. Housing international students. Housing others who are displaced. Discipling and counseling one another, serving at Good News Mission, volunteering at Life Centers, using woodworking skills to make toys for children, organizing meals for those in our congregation who are suffering or recovering from surgeries, making and delivering those meals, organizing parties to celebrate every baby that comes into our congregation. And dear friends, that's all I could think of. But I want you to know that's not a list of suggestions. That's a list of activity. And I praise the Lord for every single thing on that list. And for the things that I just couldn't think of as I went through it. Some people ask, you know, what's, so what's going on at your church? And, th- and they're often looking for some visible and quantifiable answer. And all I can say is this, is that God's Spirit is using every single one of you who are doing these things for His glory, and for the good of others, and it is awesome. It is completely mind-blowing. It is so wonderful. These are things you cannot put on an annual report. These are things you cannot measure with numbers and money and, and even people or time. I mean, th- this, is the vine, this is the vine growing chaotically, and we're just, the Lord is making it grow. And so my goal this morning is actually to encourage you to stay steady in it and to challenge all of our thinking on what it means to love our neighbor. I want to start by actually asking you a question, which 
I think I already know the answer to, and, and that is this. Do you find that there are some people who are easier to love than others? That's what I thought you would say. Of course there are. They generally fall into one of two categories. People who are more like me, right? Not necessarily just looking like me, though that is a factor for some, but those who are like me in the political arena, those who are like me in religion, those who are like me in my view of morality, those who are like me in the way we do family, and on and on and on. The second category, it's also easier to love those who reciprocate love to me. When love is returned from you to me. Generally speaking, those are the two categories of people it's just easier to love. And everybody you ask, whether they're a Christian or not, they would say that same thing. People who are more like me, people who reciprocate love to me. Those are the people that are easiest to love. This kind of love, friends, is summed up like this. Love your neighbor if... Love your neighbor if, if they are like me, if they appreciate my love for them, if they reciprocate my love back to me, if fill in the blank. But for us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we simply cannot be satisfied with love your neighbor if. We can't. We must love our neighbor as, as ourselves. Now, do not be confused. This is not the Bible commanding us to love ourselves, and then we can begin to love other people. That is the twisted, lying way that the world looks at that command. The Bible actually assumes that you and I already love ourselves. We're already committed to our well-being. We already instinctively look out for ourselves. You are going to make sure you eat, whether it is at this banquet down here or it is somewhere else. If you are hurt, you're going to make sure you get care. You, are going to, you instinctively love yourself. I instinctively love myself. And what the Bible commands is in the same way that you instinctively love yourself, love your neighbors. Be so committed to them willing to sacrifice for them, willing to serve them, that it becomes a supernaturally given instinct to do so. And in Luke 10, this is what Jesus wants to teach this lawyer who approaches him. Not a lawyer like we think of today. Uh, this would be an expert in the Mosaic Law, uh, the first five books of our Old Testament. He asks Jesus questions, and in response, Jesus tells one of his most famous parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And this is what we learn here, that genuine love for one's neighbor is sacrificial without being selective. Genuine love for one's neighbor is sacrificial without being selective. So first, let's think of the lawyer's questions here, all right? There are two of them, and before we get into the context, I want to tell you something about both of these questions when they just sit out there on their own. 
they are both important questions. They are both important. The questions are in uh, verse 25 and in 29. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's the first question. Friends, there is no more significant question than that. To ask of eternal life, William Hendrickson says, is to ask of the kind of life that is not only endless in duration but priceless in quality. It's, about, it's asking about sin forgiven. It's asking about a right relationship with God. It's asking about knowing God as Father. It's asking about being part of God's kingdom. It's asking about being saved from the punishment we deserve. It's asking about knowing the grace and mercy and love of God. Quite frankly, it's asking about Jesus. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that those who believe in Him should not perish but have eternal life. It's an important question, and dear friends, if that question burns in you, if it burns in your heart, do not let it go. Do not put it aside. Pursue the ends of that question with all of your might. And if you are in gospel conversation with others and they are asking these kinds of eternal questions, do not let it go. Persevere in it. Be prayerful in it. Be patient in it because there's no more important answer that you could help them understand than the answer to that question. The second question is, who is my neighbor? It's another important question, isn't it? Because loving our neighbor is commanded. It's commanded in the Old Testament. Jesus commands it on more than one occasion. And the New Testament letters carry that command so that Galatians 5.14 can say, the whole law is summed up in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So if we're going to love our neighbor, it just makes sense to find out who is the neighbor, right? That's an important question to answer. But there's more to the story here than just the importance of these questions. Because the context reveals that though the lawyer's questions are important, they are also insincere. These are not sincere questions that he has brought to Jesus. Look at verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, the lawyer's questions are questionable. His motives are malicious. He doesn't want to get information. He wants to get Jesus. He wants to catch him in a flaw. He wants to catch him tripping up. He wants to find something to give ammunition to Jesus' opposition. This is the same word, by the way, that Jesus says to Satan himself when he says, you, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is related to many other times when question, a question is asked to test him. It's trying to trip him up, trying to get him, if you will. And then when you get down to verse 29, we'll see Jesus' interaction in just a moment. But look in verse 29. He, that is the lawyer, desiring to justify himself 
To justify means to declare righteous. He wants to declare himself righteous. He wants to prove that he is completely free of, uh, of fault when it comes to the eyes of the law. He is not interested in what Jesus has to say. Unless Jesus wants to pat him on the back and tell him what a good job he's been doing. Do you know how many people come to God that way? I wonder how often you and I come to God that way. To come to God, not so much saying what God will say, but finding our way to make sure God pats us on the back. Insincerity in asking important questions wasn't limited to the first century. It's common for people to ask important questions with insincerity about God, Christ, faith. So take this question, for example. I'll just read it plainly, and then I'll demonstrate what I mean. So here's the question. Are you saying that everyone who doesn't believe in Jesus will go to hell and not heaven, even religious people, even good people? There are two ways that you can ask that question. You know that, right? There is the way that says, Are you saying that everyone who doesn't believe in Jesus is going to hell and not to heaven? Even religious people? Even good people? Hear that way of saying it? That's an insincere way of asking that question. But there is a sincere way. When the Holy Spirit of God gets hold of the heart and someone says, are you, are you saying that everyone who doesn't believe in Jesus is going to hell and not to heaven? Even, even religious people? Even good people? The soul that trembles under the weight of that question is asking with sincerity. In our story, the lawyer asks important but insincere questions, revealing a heart that Jesus will confront in order to teach him and to teach those around him and to teach us about loving our neighbor. So now let's get to the Lord's answers. The lawyer's questions are important yet insincere. The Lord's answers. There are two separate answers. We will take each as they come. This may be surprising to you. I hope you'll understand what I mean after I explain it. But the first answer looks suspicious. The first answer looks suspicious. So the lawyer asked, so let's just read it, verse, beginning in verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So the lawyer, Jesus has the lawyer actually give an answer. He has the lawyer do what lawyers do best, which, which was to interpret the Old Testament, which was to teach what it said. And so he quotes what we know as the Shema, which was a declaration of faith that Jews 
still say in the morning and in the evening. Because in Deuteronomy 6, not only shall you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, but you shall talk about it when you go to sleep and when you rise. And so there are these two times a day that this confession of faith happens. And so he quotes this and he quotes, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which is also taught in the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. It's something Jesus himself would say is the summary of the law. These two things. And then Jesus responds in verse 28. He said to him, you have answered correctly. Dear lawyer, you know your Bible. You know your theology. It is solid. Check. But there's not a period there. I mean, there wasn't really a period. Then, I'm just telling you that in our English translation, the idea keeps going. That's not the end of Jesus' thought. Can you you imagine what the lawyer might have looked like as he's saying you have answered correctly? Right? I got it. I raised my hand in Sunday school. I got the right answer. All those hard questions, I got them. It's the next part that actually looks suspicious to us. Do this and you will live. Now he had asked, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, do this and you shall live. Do this. Now if you've been around Christianity for any amount of time, you probably feel at least a little bit unsettled here. Is Jesus really saying that we need to obey the law in order to gain eternal life? Doesn't Paul say, by works of the law, no one will be justified? What's going on? Are Jesus and Paul at odds with one another? Does the Bible contradict itself here? Well, no, Jesus and Paul are not at odds with one another. The Bible does not contradict itself. Jesus is so wise in conversation with people that he knows exactly who he's talking to. And so he says the very thing that will get to the heart. So this same question is going to be asked later in Luke. If you just take it as your homework to keep reading in Luke until you find that question again, you're going to find that a rich young ruler is going to ask it. And Jesus commends him too, says, that's great, but here's one thing you lack. Sell everything you have and follow me. Well, now, does that mean every single person who's going to follow Jesus has to sell everything they have? No, what it means is Jesus knows who's right in front of him, and he knows that he loves money more than he loves anything else, and so he's going to put his finger there, and he's going to press so that his heart is exposed. And here we have one who is both meticulous about being seen obedient, but he knows. He knows he can't do this. That's why he asked the next question, by the way. Uh, So, who is my neighbor then? That's why he goes on. He's talking to a man who loves theology. 
He's talking to a man who would gladly meet you at Starbucks to talk about all manner of theological systems and the second coming of Christ and what mode of baptism is best and, and, and whether you should be this or that and whether you should take this view or that view and talk about the hypostatic union of Jesus and all kinds of things. This man is eager to meet you and to talk about these things because they are intellectually stimulating and he loves to be right. So he will gladly disciple you in the things that he knows. But faith that's limited to right answers and right theology is no faith at all. Faith doesn't just teach right information. Faith brings life transformation. So listen to James. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith does not, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says, oh, go in peace, be warmed and filled, editorial comment, I'll pray for you. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one lawyer. You do well. That's good theology. Even the demons believe. And tremble. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Woo! Talk about uncomfortable. We're getting all kinds of uncomfortable there. Justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God. The scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. James is saying, do not walk around claiming that you have faith if there, is no, if there are no evidentiary works in your life. The works prove the faith. They don't give the faith. They prove the faith. Going up to the mountain, raising the dagger over Isaac, proved Abraham believed God. And so we must know that obedience, doing good works, is not evidence that we should be accepted by God. It's evidence that we have been accepted by God. It doesn't lead to faith. It proceeds out of faith. You see, those who have eternal life, we often, 
We often say, uh, you know, if, if someone, um, uh, we, we're getting to know someone else. I remember actually sitting in uh, an OBGYN's office with Susan. I can't remember which pregnancy it was, but there were all kinds of Bibles and, you know, framed scripture things uh, on the shelf behind the desk. And so the doctor comes in and he sits down and I can't remember what we were doing, but I looked at him before we ever talked about medical anything. I said, oh, are you a believer? He said, a believer in what? I knew this was not his office at that moment. Uh, and we often refer to Christians as believers, right? It's, it, it's equally as true to say that the Christian is a doer. We are not simply to hear. We are to do. The doing demonstrates the believing. Jesus' point is a right theology without a right life means that your theology isn't fully right. Any theology that you hold that doesn't work itself out in the way you sing to the Lord, in the way you pray to the Lord, in the way you talk to your spouse, in the way that you parent your children, in the way that you approach your work life, in the way that you approach uh, Supreme Court judge hearings, in the way that you just fill in the blank... If your theology is nowhere connected to that, then your theology is wrong. Amen. And that's part of what I love about that list that I read at the beginning of the sermon. I love, I love seeing that. I love hearing that. Didn't you just enjoy hearing that? And I praise the Lord for that. But dear friends, we must, we must fight to make sure our theology never becomes wrong by being disconnected from life. That we are more interested in intellectual rightness than we are practical rightness. That that's all we're interested in is just getting all the T's and the I's correct. And that is important. That is critical because if you don't do that, you won't do the living right. But if it stops in the classroom and doesn't follow you to work, it's not the kind of theology the Bible teaches. So, what does Jesus do then? <laughs> do this, and you will live. Nobody can live that way. So, even as Jesus says, you have answered correctly, right? His chest is poking out. Like this. And he says, do this and you will live. Can you imagine how far up his eyebrows went when Jesus said that? D do that? And that's why he, desiring to justify himself because he knows he doesn't do that fully. Every single human being knows they don't do this fully. And so he says, and who is my neighbor? Now, earlier I talked about the fact that it's easier to, that generally people find that it's easier to love people if, right? Love your neighbor if, if they reciprocate, if they are more like me. Well, that didn't start in the 21st century because in that day, Jews limited loving your neighbor to Jews. Pharisees restricted it further to Pharisees. And there were even some who basically made judgment calls about whether you were living right or not. And if you were living right, then uh, you are the neighbor that I should love. 
Jesus isn't going to actually deal. This is wonderful. This is incredible. It's, Jesus twists this whole thing on its head because Jesus is not going to deal with the limit often placed on the word neighbor. He's going to deal with the limit often placed on love. That's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to deal with that limitation. Now, in doing that, we will see an answer. It'll come. So, second, so let's just move on from the answer that is suspicious because I think we've got it. That's suspicious, but once we think about it and see what, how Jesus acts, it's, the suspicion fizzles. The second answer, though, is surprising. Jesus' second answer is surprising. Who is my neighbor? Verse 30, Jesus replied, a man was going, can you imagine what the lawyer's doing at this point? What is he doing? He's just like walking off and there's like a, you know, like a, 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 a spotlight coming on Jesus in the silhouette. You know, he's talking to him. It's like in those, in like a play where there's conversation and then all of a sudden there's going to be this uh, monologue that goes on for just a bit. And that's what Jesus is doing. He says, well, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the other place, saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. This is really shocking stuff to the Jews who are listening to him. Now, there have been many who have tried to allegorize this, meaning they've tried to make everything in this parable mean something else. Like the inn is the church and the Samaritan is Jesus. And Jesus is telling a story. This is a parable. Okay, Parables come in basically two forms. One is kind of a short one-off statement. The kingdom of heaven is like. Okay, And then there are the more storied parables that have one main point. And that is what this is doing. That is this kind of parable. So when you read parables, when you read the story parables... What, you, what we have to avoid is pressing on the details too much. If you press on the details too much, you will miss the point. So I'm not going to press on the details. Uh, it is not, it, do not, this Wednesday night, when you go back to your growth group, start talking about the details and making up all kinds of wonderful things that could be true but are not said in the Bible. Growth group leaders, where are you? Raise your hand. Where are you? Back there? Right there. Who else? Are they skipping church? They really need to be here. <laughs> James? Counting. Uh, well, that's not. Somebody pass this along. Do not focus on the details. Do not pounce on them and, exp, you know, just, we're just going to expound on all of these things. We just have to take the text for what it says and get right to what Jesus is meaning to say. So this particular story is about a man traveling the road to Jericho, which was well known to be a dangerous road. There were lots of places to hide. 
So it was a nice place if you were of wicked intent to hide out and wait for some lone traveler to come by, which is what happens here. He falls among robbers. They rob him, they beat him, they leave him for dead. And then the surprises start to come. Because that would have been the kind of thing that probably happens all the time. But then we come to the really surprising part. The first bit of surprising news is the one who helps, the one who loves his neighbor. The one who loves his neighbor is really surprising here. Because the priest passes by on the other side. The Levite passes by on the other side. The, the, the Greek verb for, uh, uh, for to come means is, is erkomai, all right? That's what that word is. But this one has, it's uh, anti-parerkomai, so anti. You recognize that? Anti, against. So they are getting as far away from this man as possible. When it says they pass by on the other side, that's what it means. They are anti that side of the road. They are not even going near. Do not, growth group leaders, talk about ritual purity and all of these manners of things to get yourself tied up. These are men who should have been exemplary. These are men who serve, at least in a formal capacity, a compassionate God, a condescending God, a merciful God, a God who calls us to be like Him, and they went the other way. That's the problem here. They are meant to be merciful, but they went the other way. And as the lawyer and others hear this, it's possible they might have expected this was some kind of jab on the religious elite, right? I mean, Jesus has had his troubles with those folks. So maybe the next guy is going to be a Jew, just an everyday ordinary Jew, and he's going to come to the rescue. But that is not what happens. But a Samaritan, verse 33 Now, that may mean nothing to you, and it may mean nothing to us really because, quite honestly, we see hospitals called Good Samaritan this and ministries called Good Samaritan that and uh, ministries and churches that go around and fix, you know, pipes and walls as Samaritan's Hammer. I was in a church one time that had a Samaritan's Hammer ministry. Um, we're, we're, we, we actually think, oh, that's good. That's good. You're a Good Samaritan. Well, in those days, those two words together, that was an oxymoron. That didn't make sense. The Samaritans were a people who were of mixed race, who were disgusting to the Jews. John 4 says Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans, nothing to do with them. The animosity was well known. And this is the one who will be the hero. This man. Are you sure, Jesus? Did you mean to tell us that the guy falling down was a Samaritan and the Jew is going to be the hero? Are you sure you mean this? The Samaritan is going to have compassion. The Samaritan, instead of anti, is just going to go pros erkomai, go to him. Yes, Jesus says, That's exactly what I mean. That instead of crossing the street to avoid the suffering man, this Samaritan crosses the street to help the suffering man.
Now, just as an aside, if a Samaritan can be the hero in a Jewish rabbi's story, then certainly we are not beyond being used for such kinds of mercy in other people's lives. It's surprising the one who loves his neighbor. You know what else is surprising? The way he loves his neighbor. Because the way he loves his neighbor, I mean, that glorious, that is first of all spontaneous. This is spontaneous love for neighbor. That glorious list of things that I've read at the beginning, this wonderful thing, do you know I went through it? And every one of them you just intentionally go out to do. It's either on your calendar or it's part of an organization or you just decide, well, lunch is the time. We're just going to do that. I mean, there is all kinds of planning that goes into this. But not the love in this parable. Do you notice that? Look at verse 31. Now, by chance, a priest was going. And likewise which means by chance as well, the Levite was going. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he's just journeying. This just happens. Now, the, the phrase by chance actually means that it's been arranged. It, it appears to have been arranged, but not by the ones in the story. What happens here is just happening, so to speak. It's spontaneous, but... Dear friends, remember, it is not fate, okay? Anytime things just seem spontaneous, it is not fate, it is not random, it is not dumb luck. God sovereignly arranges the so-called spontaneous interactions of our day. He puts people in our path, people who hurt, people who need. He graciously gives us opportunities to love them as ourselves, so in that way, Jesus does answer the question, who is my neighbor, right? If he was going to answer it straightforwardly, he'd just say, well, whoever you happen upon. That's your neighbor. Just whoever you come across today, that's him, that's her. That's your neighbor. Friends, when I plan my interactions, which is a good thing to do. It's good to calendar our love for our neighbor, but when I, I am more likely to love my neighbor if, if I'm always in control of when and where I will love my neighbor. Because I'm deciding I'm going to love this person in this way. I'm going to love that person in that way. And I could very well miss God-ordained opportunities to love my neighbor as myself. You pop into the grocery store on the way home after the banquet. There's a woman weeping openly. I just have to get three things and I have to get out of this store. It happens all the time, doesn't it? We, are, we as a culture are so productivity conscious and so time poor that we can't slow down for three minutes to do something that could have an eternal impact on another human being.
I'm thankful because there are times that I've been with some of you where you have stopped. We were doing something else, and you have stopped. It's just a joy. Because you saw something that I didn't see, and then we're going that way. All right, we're going that way. But don't we all need to be reminded of that? Don't we all need to be reminded that, look, you can read a thousand books on productivity. We just need one sentence here. Love your neighbor as yourself. You want to be productive? Love your neighbor as yourself. You want to know what godly productivity is? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength in every arena that you're in. And love your neighbor as yourself in every arena that you're in. That's taking Jesus' hands and feet to the end of the street. Is our love for neighbor limited to what we put on our calendars? There's no organization to join to do this. There's no sign-up sheet outside to love your neighbor as yourself. Everything that we, have in, that we are encouraging through those uh, displays and sign-up things and opportunities, they are all magnificent. But let us not forget that our love for neighbor is not limited to what we signed up for. Right? It is spontaneous. The second thing is that it's sacrificial. I assume you heard, did you hear that? Did you hear all the things that are his own? Set him on his own animal. He's going to take responsibility for, uh, he gives him his own uh, denarii. He bound up his wounds with his own stuff. It's not like he went to the CVS. These are supplies he would have had on his journey. Because he figured he would need them. And here he is. Binding, so let's just listen to what he does. Verse 34, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. He binds up his wounds. By the way, that is a jab at the religious leaders, because do you know what Ezekiel 34's condemnation of the shepherds of Israel was? They refused to bind up the wounds of those who were wounded. But that's not all. He laid out the expense for the first aid, right? Pours on wine, which would have been a disinfectant. He wouldn't have called it that, but it would have disinfected. He put on oil for the wounds to treat him, but that's not all. He put him on his own animal because the man was in too bad a shape to walk. He didn't just bandage him up and say, well, hope you figure something out. I'm on a business trip. I really have to go now. He put him on his own animal and he took him to the inn and he got a room, but that's not all. Because he took care of them. I kind of wonder if he just if he couldn't sleep because he was waking up every time there was a groan of pain or a wince on the other side of the room. But it says he takes care of them. The way 1 Peter 3 says that elders are to take care of the church. 
This is a great word of care and nurturing. He didn't outsource it. He did it himself. And then apparently the next day he knew he could not stay any longer, but he could not just leave. So that's not all. He, he heads on, but he leaves enough money to cover the expenses for several days and says, I'll come back if I need, when I come back, if there's still a bill left, I will pay it. Everything that was his own was used to pour out love for another human being. There was nothing he said, oh, you can't have my time. You can't have my oil. You can't have my wine. You can't have my money. This love is sacrificial. If you were that man on the road and you went to tell the story, do you know what phrase my guess is you'd be saying over and over again? But that's not all. But that's not all. But that's not all. But that's not all. Genuine love for one's neighbor is sacrificial without being selective. He just comes upon this man. That's, why, that's what Jesus wants to drive home with his question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said the one who showed him mercy. So, in response to the question, who is my neighbor, Jesus asks, are you a neighbor? That's essentially what he asks, because he's going to send him off to do likewise. Are you neighborly? Stop worrying about selecting who is and is not your neighbor, and be the neighbor like this Samaritan. Genuine love for one's neighbor is sacrificial without being selective. I mean, back in chapter 6, I won't read the whole thing, but Jesus says to love our enemies. Okay? He said, I'll just read two verses, but love your enemies and do good and lend with expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for He is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. That is exactly what the Good Samaritan is doing. He is being sacrificial, loving, lending, doing good, expecting nothing in return without being selective. I mean, this is an enemy we're talking about. Genuine love for one's neighbor is sacrificial without being selective. It has to be, doesn't it? It has to be because we are to be imitators of God. And think about how God has loved us in Christ. His love is not selective. There is no criterion on which He decided to love us. He loves us because He loves us. And this love is sacrificial. Jesus crossed the street, as it were, from the glories of heaven to the depravity of earth to come to us who are beaten and robbed and left dead in our sin. And he has compassion on us. And he lays down his own life. And he sheds his own blood for us. And he binds up our wounds. By his stripes we are healed. But there's more than that. Because there's all of eternity for those to whom Jesus comes. It's not a couple of days in an inn. It's forever in a room in my Father's house. 
That's where we're going. The death of Jesus was not spontaneous. That's the place where we depart. It was spontaneous in the same way that we mean spontaneity there in the sense that it was planned by God ahead of time. But it was not spontaneous in the sense that it just happened. But by God's sovereign plan, Jesus came that he might show us grace and mercy and love and save us by his grace and save all who call on him through faith. So that all through our life, no matter what we face in this life, no matter how this life may beat us up and rob us and leave us for dead, we can say, but that's not all. But that's not all. Genuine love for one's neighbor is sacrificial without being selective. And because we have the sacrificial, unselective love of Jesus poured out on us by the Holy Spirit, then by the power of that same Spirit, we can and must obey Jesus' last words here. You go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. Be my hands and feet in mercy, in compassion, in sacrifice on whoever you happen to come upon and so amplify the gospel of Jesus you so desperately want them to believe. Let's take just a moment of quiet reflection and then I will pray and then we will head to the banquet. O oh, great and merciful God, we bow before you, thankful to be the recipients of your mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are encouraged as we think about all the varying ministries that are happening that we have talked about over the last two weeks. As we are reminded that ministry is happening all the time by the power of your Spirit, whether we can quantify it or not. And we are thankful. I thank you for every person who by the power of your Spirit is investing themselves in others on purpose. Keep us steady in it. Grow us. And Lord, today we ask that you would penetrate our hearts with that truth that genuine love for one's neighbor is sacrificial without being selective. Oh God, keep us from selective love. Keep us from loving in word only and not in deed. Help us to see with God-given eyes those who we happen upon 
in the varying arenas of our lives, whether we went in intending to do ministry or not. Help us as a congregation to love our neighbor as ourself. We thank you for the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ on our behalf. We know ourselves to be unlovable. If to be loved, we must first be like you or first be able to reciprocate your love. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that he is the propitiation for our sin, that the wrath, your holy, righteous wrath, is satisfied in the death of Jesus on our behalf. Thank you that he crossed the street to bind our wounds, to raise us up, to give us life. Help us to speak this gospel often. Help us to emulate it by bearing fruit in accordance with it. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity that we have to gather and to eat together and for the food that you provide for us. We thank you for the privilege of giving today over and above our regular giving. We thank you for all that you have provided through that and we will rejoice in it. We pray that as we sit around the tables, as we have conversation, as many things will cross through our conversational patterns that we would not fail to encourage one another, to build one another up in love, to think on even these things that we have talked about. We pray as we go from here. Lord, we pray that you will bless us and keep us that you will make your face to shine upon us, that you will lift up your countenance toward us and give us peace. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, we pray this. Amen.